Oh, good morning. How are you? Good. Well, if you are new here, my name is Ryan Grable. I'm the lead pastor, and I know a few of you are, so we're glad that you've joined us. We're glad that you're uh, uh, jumping into our church experience, and we hope that you at least meet a few people, and if you're in our church and you've been going here for a while and you see somebody new, you know what to do, right? Right? Okay, good. We're on the same page. So, um, but if you have any questions about anything, just come find me and ask me any questions that you can. I'll be up in the front, like Christy said, uh, afterwards. Um, but let's just jump into it. We are currently in our series on the book of Hebrews. We, we as a church feel like it's so important to dive into a book, take time, and just kind of work through it a little bit. We, we know how it is when we read scripture and you're like, what does that mean? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't know, but I'm just going to go over it because I'm going to find something that's really good. But when you start to dive in and you start to really deepen your understanding of, like, what we're reading, it really opens up a lot in our understanding of Scripture. But not only that, but, like, who Jesus is, especially in the book of Hebrews. And so one thing to remember, and maybe if you're here today, maybe this, I, I think this message will speak to some of you in here just even based on some of the conversations that we've had, I know it speaks to me. And what he, what he starts to lay out is valuable for us. Some of it is, in one way, irrelevant to us. And so we'll go through that kind of quickly because it was meant for people at a time. But a lot of it is. And so what Hebrews, uh, the writer, is writing to these people in a church that are struggling. And if you don't know this, this church... It has had people who are leaving the church and going back to their old practice of sacrificing at the temple and they're leaving their faith. They have people who are just outright leaving their faith because it's dangerous to become, to be a Christian at this time. And the writer is writing to them <laughs> that to leave would be foolish. To go back to the old ways would be counterproductive to what Christ has done. And so he's telling them and hoping that they will choose Jesus in the midst of their struggle. Choose their faith they once had that changed their life in the midst of a struggle. And he is encouraging them to why living for Jesus is worth everything. This is a big deal for them. And for us, it might be like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is, yeah, he's my everything. But we have all struggled. We have all wanted to return to old ways. We have all at times wondered, God, where are you and is this worth it? So it's a very relatable book to us. Hebrews, when you read it, it doesn't read like any of the writings of Apostle Paul, John, Peter, James. It, it, it's a sermon. And so it reads like a sermon and it should be read like a sermon. But what we're doing is taking a sermon and going piece by piece through the sermon. So if it feels like, wait, this is leading into something else and this sermon's leading into something else, it's because I'm preaching another sermon. And that's what the book is meant to be read like. And so what, what we can do is take pieces of the sermon and pull it out into our own life. If you've missed any of our series, I'll just briefly bring you to, to date. The first sermon... And the first part of his opening in the first four verses was, hey, listen, Jesus is greater. And he pulls back and he gives them the big 30,000 foot view of like why Jesus is greater 
than even what they're struggling with. The second, then he moves into, like, not only that, because they're struggling with, like, does Jesus have the authority to do what he says he did? And so he pulls back and establishes to them that his authority and dominion is above spiritual realms. As a matter of fact, all spiritual realms submits to Jesus. And then he rolls into that, and since Jesus has this authority, he is calling you to reclaim the destiny of which God originally created you to be in right relationship with him and in rest with him, which was the next part of it, which was Jesus brings us into a true rest. He references this God rested on the seventh day, and, and, and we can enter into that rest. This is a shalom rest. This is a at peace rest. This is when you feel and know that all things are right within you. You're in the universe's rhythm. And that's the way God intended you to be. So he's saying, no, 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 no. No, come back to the true rest. That's the only place you will find him. And then he moves into this next section, which I think is extremely important. And he is now going to challenge them in a, in a way that, that pr probably might break their brain a little bit or maybe is where they're really actually struggling. And it's to grow their confidence in Christ. This is the goal of this message for you and for me. And it's the goal of this section for the people. And I would say ultimately for the, almost the entire book is to grow their confidence. Remind themselves of what they put their trust in originally when they question. Have you noticed that confidence boosts, right? Or sorry, that confidence boosts commitment. The more confident you are, you're more confident to commit to something. Does that make sense to you? Uh, let me give you an example, a really bad one. But like when you're... I, I've never been a gambler, but if you are, you know what I mean? You will know that if you ever see somebody who's gambling, the more confident they feel about their hand, the more they will push chips on the table. Do you know what I'm talking about? Their confidence is boosting, right, ultimately their commitment to what they're going to do. Confidence does that. In sports, all it takes is for someone to experience confidence. You know what I'm talking about? Not, not like what the Lakers are currently going through. I'm really sorry about that. It's terrible. Or guy, what Boston's currently going through. If you don't watch the NBA, then it, it doesn't matter. Um, the Lakers are probably not going to win the championship. Anyway, so whew, let's just let that go. But in sports, you can see it when someone starts to feel their confidence. They would say, oh, they're in the zone. They're untouchable. They cannot be stopped. And there's a few players that you can tell, like, oh, they're in, they, they can't be stopped. It, it, their commitment to do the unthinkable, it's, it's there. They will take shots that they would not normally take. The confidence is there. Have you ever seen somebody with confidence, and, and, and maybe you, as you were single, were approached with someone with confidence, and you were shocked? You're like, that's a lot of confidence. Like, you know what I mean? Or you see your friend, you're like, dude, like, don't, don't, don't do that. And they're like, no, 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 I got this. And their confidence leads them to the commitment. Whether it was a crash and burn or whatever, it's the confidence that leads them to commit. He is calling them to have confidence to commit. And it will boost your commitment. Um, 
I remember one day I was very confident in myself, and this is where the writer doesn't want us to put our confidence, is in ourselves. Because you will not be able to live up to that. And so he's saying, you need Jesus in this confidence of your spiritual life and whether you're righteous before God. You cannot do it. You may think you do, but you can't. I was 19 years old. I, I think I might have shared this before. I, 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 was, um, I was dumb, and I was very arrogant, and I decided that me and my friend, we were out on a ride, and we decided to stop at a YMCA in the outside courts, and then I saw these guys playing, but we were shooting around. These one guys were shooting around, and they're like, you want to play? And I, was like, and, and I was like, yeah, sure. And I was like 19, and my friend was, and we were decent basketball players, and I was watching them play. And their form was bad, you know what I'm talking about? Where you're like, mm, I'm going to judge you by your form. I think we can beat you. And then they're like, do you want to put money on it? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> this is how confident I was. I didn't have any money to put on it. And I bet. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to take their money. And so, um, oh yeah, I, I wasn't a Christian yet. So I didn't really have like a lot of... <laughs> And so, and, and at the time, I was so confident, I, I was also inebriated. So, like, I was thinking that I can absolutely do this. Maybe that is what gave me the confidence. I don't know. But so I, we start to play, and then, and then, and then eventually uh, we lost. We got hustled. And then uh, they're like, where's my money? And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't have any money. And they're like, uh-oh. And then they called their friends over. And it was a really rough night for me from then on out. It wasn't great. And then, uh, uh, but I ended up not having to pay. Uh, so it was good. Sometimes our confidence will mislead us because it's placed in the wrong things. And he is calling them to not place their confidence in anything else but Christ when it comes to the work that was done on the cross. There's uh, a few themes in today when you read this section. Whenever you read scripture, it's good to look for themes. Like, what, what, what is he really trying to say? And one of them, you're going you're gonna to see it right away. There's three of them. But one of them is definitely this, is Jesus is capable of dealing with your sin day after day. I know, what, I know what it's like to be a Christian. I know what it's like to fail as a Christian. I know what it's like to give in to temptation as a Christian. I know what it's like to struggle. I know the fight. You're not alone in that. We, we all are in that. And I think some of us can kind of get tired of the fact that we have to be like, I failed again. Uh, God, you might, I might not be acceptable to you anymore. There's, there must be another way to atone for my sins. Maybe I need to shame myself. Maybe I need to just punish myself. Because you, Jesus, what you did couldn't be enough because I am this sinner. They're unsure. They're insecure. They fail so much. Or even to the fact that maybe some of us in this room have thought, maybe God just hates me because I'm so bad. But this is what he's trying to instill, a confidence in that Jesus can deal with your sin and capable of dealing with your sin day after day after day. The second one is Jesus is the best person to help you in your temptation. And I think that's hard, and we'll break it down a little bit, but it's hard for us because we're like, well, he was God. <laughs> How could he help me? How could God help me? He's very unrelatable to me. Some of us might feel that way. Well, I'm not Jesus, so I fail. How could he relate to me? And we'll get into this in a minute. And the last theme 
in this section of scripture is this confidence in Christ. What he's doing is it boosts our commitment. The more confident we are, the more it boosts our commitment and to his calling, right? And I think this is true. I wrote this down. Commitment absorbs the pains of trials. Have you experienced that? When you have a commitment to something, isn't it amazing what you can endure? Isn't it amazing maybe even how you interpret the pains of the trial and how it actually might fuel you further? We do it all the time physically in activities. We do it all the time at our job. We do it times in our relationship. It boosts, you take the pains of what your commitment is and it turns it into something else. I think this is true. Commitment bolsters obedience. When you are committed to something, you then align yourself to be obedient to fulfill that commitment. And that's, that's ultimately, I think, the, 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 if you could walk out today with one phrase, it's that the stronger I am committed, the, the greater obedience I will have. And I will experience less and less of the failings of temptation all the time, the stronger my commitment. And the stronger my commitment is based on the confidence that I have in who Jesus is and who I am in him. Okay, let's pray and then we'll get into this message. God, we thank you that you have given us more than we ever deserved in Christ. And that God, that many of us in here, we, can, we will walk around with our heads low, feeling we are not good enough or feeling like we are ashamed or feeling like we are not strong enough. All of these things, God, that we will do to, 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 to step away from actually coming to you. But that is where our confidence is. That is where the commitment is. And God, that is where we can find strength for obedience. So God, help us in this little piece of scripture pull out for each one of us what the writer was trying to bolster in each of the people in that church in that very difficult time. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Hebrews, starting in chapter 4, and you can start in verse 14. I, um, I did my slides a little differently. I'm going to try to make this maybe as easy as possible for some of us to maybe mark these things in our Bible as we go through it. But I titled this message, and if there's one thing I think is, is so true, is confidence is, is freedom. And it sounds weird, but, but it is freedom. When we are confident, we can and then walk, breathe, and experience freedom when we're confident. Think about this, and think about when you feel most free. Just go to that, maybe that place of when, when do I feel the most free? Maybe it's with your friends, and they know everything about you. And you know that whatever you share will not be held against you in the court of law, right? You know that there's space to breathe because you're confident in the relationship and it brings freedom versus when you're in ones that are unsafe. You experience freedom when there's confidence. Relationally, the opposite of confidence in a relationship is when you're in constant worry and anxiety. I have experienced this in my life in many different relationships, but you know what I'm talking about. When, and let's even go even more deeper to like a committed relationship. 
do you, do you walk around with a, I don't know, I'm not confident in our relationship, and so I, I don't trust, I'm worried, I'm scared, and it's the opposite of freedom. It locks you in versus an open, honest, real, and there's confidence that you can walk around knowing that all things are well, that you have confidence in that relationship. Financially, it's the same way. You feel freedom when you have a level of confidence in provision. And I, I, I get what it feels like to feel financially insecure. It's a struggle when you're there and you feel kind of locked in. You feel like you don't have the freedom to breathe. You worry. You worry about security. Even as basic as safety, having confidence that you're safe is so important that you feel safe. You don't have to walk outside at night and just be vigilant. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. I've been in that situation, it seems like, even during the daytime now. I'm walking around, like, <laughs> vigilant, you know, being nervous. It, it's something that, like, as a dad, even with my girls, I'm teach, I teach them to fight. I don't know. It, does, has every girl learned this, how to fight? I teach them how to fight off a defender. I'm always wrestling with them. I'm always like, okay, now, like, like how strong are you? You know what I mean? Because why, that, that, that is to me of like a part of like, I'm thinking that there is danger out there. There's not that freedom out there. Every time they go, I have a sense of like nervousness and are they prepared because there's not that much confidence. Confidence brings freedom. Now, all these things I just listed are just parts of life. But when it comes to our faith, the writer is trying to instill in them that there should be no question of who Jesus is. He does not question who he is. He does not question what he is able to do. And he does not question his confidence in his role in the Father. So we should not question it as well. The writer is reminding them of the confidence that they once had and why they had it. And so we're going to see it in a second. Before we read this text, to understand a little bit of context, it'll make a little sense. Whenever you're reading something like this, um, when, when there's a phrase or part of theology or a doctrine that's just kind of said and stated like this is an accepted statement, it means he's, he, the community understands it. You'll see Paul do it sometimes where he just says something that's pretty theologically profound, but the community understands it. It's almost like, oh, yeah, it's like, Two really smart people talking. They're like, oh, yeah, like the theory of blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yes, like the theory. And they understand it. They don't have to unpack it. They don't have to explain it. And so he'll do that. But right now he's going to slow down a little bit because there's something that the people do not know. They don't understand. Or they're having a hard time accepting it. So he's going to slow down after a very big statement to unpack it. Now what's happening at the time is there is a question of whether Jesus can be salvation and this high priest, this representative to God, this one who atones for our sins and is our advocate like we've heard. And they're questioning it because there's some doctrine being circulated at the time. And they have found recently in the Dead Sea Scrolls, those cave findings, it was like Cave 11, they found one that actually talked about maybe... The Messiah comes in two parts. One, 
salvation to atonement for sin as a high priest. And so people are questioning this. Maybe he wasn't, maybe this wasn't the high priest. Maybe we're waiting for another. And then a name is circulating too. And mentioned in these documents found is that there's a name, which we'll read here, that he's dealing with because they think maybe he is the Messiah to come back. And so they're, they're getting confused in their doctrine. They're getting, you know, off kilter. And so he wants to set them right. He's dealing with their traditions and he's dealing with their doubts. And so you'll hear him as he's digging down. He's like, hey, let's talk about the tradition. I don't know if you've experienced this, but when you start to change a way that you've functioned for so long, it is so counterintuitive every day, is it not? When you want to change your behavior. When you want to change your tradition, that was just, uh, it could be like this. Whenever I think about God, I think this and this, if it's negative, it takes so much to overcome that, in that, that, that level of tradition of how you viewed something. And in the same way, but even greater, because we didn't live in this time, they're not only, like Christianity for a lot of people, like our practices are kind of a part of our life. At this time, it is their life. Their social life is built around this practice of sacrificial um, atonement uh, around following the law to the letter of the law, making sacrifices for sins, uh, for repentance. So their whole life is built around this. Everything, it's the center. So he's going after a tradition that's very difficult for them to transition from. Okay, so let's read Hebrews 14, 14, or 4, 14. I'm going to read this. I'm going to slow down, and then we'll just cover a couple things. If it's highlighted in uh, yellow up there, that means that I'll just, I, I need to give a little bit of context to these, and then we'll just read right through this whole passage, and there's two big takeaways for us. One, uh, since then, we have a great high priest. He's very selective with his words. They do not just have a high priest. And the high priest to them was the center of their trust that God would, would uh, forgive their sins as a people once a year and bring it all and sacrifice and say, this is for the sin of the people. God, continue to remain with us, right? And so he is not just a high priest. He is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, th this was significant to them, maybe not as much to us, because the high priest would go in the temple and there's this veil that's like four inches thick. And once a year, he would be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. I know this sounds weird to some, but this is how it was. And they would go to the mercy seat and he would, he would have to provide this blood offering for the sins of the people. And he was, God, he was the representative of the people to God. And the mercy seat, if you don't know this, was the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, right? So he would place it upon the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And that is where heaven met humanity. And so it was once a year. It was such a dangerous job that they would tie a rope to his leg. And as he went in, in case he didn't do the right ritual purification, he would die. And they would drag him back out. This is tradition. And so he passed through the heavens is weird. To them, it's like, hmm. because what, what, what Jesus, what he's saying is Jesus 
didn't just end at the mercy seat. He transcended all of this. He is all of this. And so he's beyond this once-a-year sacrifice. He's beyond this valuable high priest. He is transcended. He has passed through the heavens. And then it says who it is, Jesus, the Son of God. And here's his encouragement. Let us hold fast to our confession. I think this is relevant for us. This is the goal. Hold fast. Hold fast in this term means hang on like your life depends on it. Have you, have you ever had to hang on like your life depended on it? Right? Have you ever had to hang on physically like your life depended on it? You know what that feels like. If you let go, you're gone. And he means this type of language where if you, if you let go, you won't have life. And so hold fast to our confession. Our confession is not just that Jesus is Lord. What this means is our testimony, your testimony, where, where you met God and God met you and Jesus saved your life and forgave your sins. That, that moment, hang, hold on fast to your testimony. What is your testimony? And they're turning their back on their testimony. And so he's saying, hold fast to that. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he's setting this up that not only is Jesus this transcendent high priest that, that would seem unrelatable, but he's saying that we also have a Jesus that it can sympathize with our weaknesses. Weaknesses is not just um, strengths and weaknesses. Weaknesses in a way, this is almost like a debilitating state in your life. Weak. Seems like you you're not able to get through it. You cannot beat it. It's difficult. And so he says, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, this is a key verse for understanding who Jesus is, especially him as why he's relatable to us. In some ways, it doesn't feel relatable because it feels like, well, he didn't sin. But what he's pointing out here is, in every respect, meaning in every aspect, he has experienced temptation. In every aspect, he was tempted, but he did not sin. And we'll get into that in a second. But verse 16, I highlighted us for a reason. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Let us, ooh, the language is different. Let us. He's telling them, no longer a high priest who needs to go once a year before them and be the representative of you to, the, to God. Let us all draw near to the throne of grace. This is a massive switch in their mindset. That they no longer need that because they have a great high priest. And so let us draw near with confidence. Confidence. Confidence is this boldly going it's a state. It's a way of being. It's courage. It's fearlessness. Boldly going before the throne. Not in arrogance. Not in that you've done good enough. But our boldness is in Jesus. Our confidence is in Jesus. And our fearlessness is because of Jesus. So he lays out this. I think we could do a whole sermon on this. But we have to keep going for the, for the study. He lays out this grand 
theological framework and doctrine that Jesus is the way to the throne. And he provided that for us. And he, not only that, gives us help in time of need. Think about this. Think about the last temptation that you had. Do you remember it? I'm not trying to bring negative thoughts in church here, but think about the last time you were tempted. Tempted with anger, tempted with uh, an emotion, tempted with something inappropriate, tempted in a way. Do you remember? Put yourself there. Do you remember the struggle? The struggle is real. Do you remember it? It's hard. You're fighting it. You're just like, yes, no, I don't know. Oh, oh, I don't. And, and, and your emotions are going and things are happening and you're just like, I, I can't win. The, the temptation has outlasted me. It's jujitsued me and I am in a submission hold and now I am going to give in to the temptation. Or remember when you resisted it, the struggle. It's real. It's not something frivolous. It's, it's a real deal. Why? The writer is saying Jesus can sympathize with you in that is because he understands temptation. He understands the moment of the struggle. He understands the fight of the struggle. And so it's important that he lays that out. Now, he's going to make this high priest claim, and then he's going to explain why he's doing it. And he's going to unpack for them. So we'll read through this somewhat quickly until we get to this last big part of the message. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest, meaning the human terms high priest, was chosen from among men and is appointed. I highlighted this because it matters for Jesus' affirmation as a high priest. He's among the people. He understands the people. He brings the people's sin to God. It says to act on behalf of men in relation to God. And to offer gifts and sacrifices to sin. Now, now, no one holds these three offices except for Jesus. One, he is the king. And, one, and two, he is the prophet. And three, he is the high priest. The king has dominion over all. The prophet is God's voice to the people. The priest is the, is the representation of the people to God. Jesus fulfills all of these. And this is why he is putting Jesus in this in this place of the high priest for them. He can deal gently, meaning that the earthly high priest, deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness, meaning he's surrounded by weakness. He's not Jesus. He's surrounded by weakness. These priests have to offer sacrifices for themselves to be clean before God because they sin. They give in to temptation. He's, and, and this phrase beset actually in a way uh, in, in this context means they're clothed in weakness. And so, yes, he's offering for the people because he is weakness himself. Because of this, he, ha he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he did for those of the people. No one takes this honor on, uh, for himself but only when God uh, only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so no one's raising their hand saying, hey, I want to be the guy, possibly dies in the, uh, in the uh, Holy of Holies if I do something wrong. I want to be the guy who is the representation of sin of, of humanity to, to God. Nobody does that. God appoints this person. So this, why those two are important is because Jesus is of the people. 
And Jesus is appointed by God. And so he fulfills this high priestly duty. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but the high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. He's quoting a psalm. You are my son today. I have begotten you. I think when we read the word begotten, especially in this context, we do get it wrong. This doesn't mean in a parental way. This means in an appointment way. He just let us know. He appointed him. Christ fulfilled his appointment. And as he says also in other places, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is one of those weird names where you're like, Melchizedek, why? But there's a lot of, there's a lot of meat here. He's going to, to use this name. To, to break a stronghold of, of the priesthood that, ha, that it has over them. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. We're going to read that scripture in a minute. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, verse 8, Although he was a son, meaning although he is a son of the house. Remember earlier, Moses was a servant of the house. Jesus is a son. Although he was a son, the king, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Oof. That is how obedience comes, is through when we are suffering, when we are tempted, when we are struggling. That is when obedience is formed. And when we give in all the time, obedience is not there. But it's through our obedience that we can resist it. Verse 9, and he made perfect, right? And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being uh, designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's that name again. Now, you have to read this. When people read this, they'll go, oh, wait, Jesus was made perfect then. No, no, no. This word perfect, and, and I wish the translation was better, it really means completion. He completed what he was tasked to do perfectly. And that is the reason he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. There's that word, all who obey. What's the writer doing? He's saying, listen, obedience manifests itself when you suffer. You're not obedient until you struggle. And then you'll find out if you're obedient or not. And then he says here, Jesus is the source to do what you couldn't do, but it's through obedience. You must, too, become obedient. And you will be able to fight temptation. You will be able to resist the struggle through obedience. Now, Melchizedek, it's a weird name. Did anybody name their kids Melchizedek? Mel? I don't know. I don't know where the name comes from. It comes from Genesis 14, 18. There's, it's a very brief figure in the story of Abraham. But what happens is this, this is described as a priest. He's a king and a priest. And he's a priest of the most high God, the one and only God. This is, this is before Aaron, before Moses. So he's the one high, one high God. And he comes out and he blesses Abraham. Abraham, the seed of this generation he's speaking to. And he blesses him. And then, which is kind of a strange thing. He's the first priest mentioned in the Bible, and he's the first one of this caliber especially who then blesses the line of Abraham. What, 
the writer is doing is saying, I know you're all about the priesthood of Aaron, and we follow by that and the high priest, but there was a priest before Abraham from where Aaron came from, Abraham, and it blessed him. And so he is kind of subverting this, this traditional practice that they can't break from. And so he, Melchizedek, which is throughout a couple chapters, so we'll, we'll explain him a little bit more. But you have to know this, and maybe this is some nerdy Bible fact, but Aaron, the high priest, first high priest, Moses' brother, is the uh, 26 generations removed from, according to the Bible, from Adam. Abraham is 20 generations removed from Adam. 10 prior to the flood, flood 10 after the flood. And so Aaron is 600, 600 years removed from, from uh, uh, Abraham. And so the, the, why the writer is making this statement is because you're holding to something that Jesus even himself supersedes. He's in the order of Melchizedek, meaning he's even above Melchizedek. So the very first priest, Jesus is greater than that. But he uses this to kind of break their mentality on it. He supersedes the law. He supersedes the priest. Now, there's two takeaways for our church. One is confidence in temptation. I think arrogance will cause you to fall. But confidence in Christ in the times of temptation. Jesus said we can call upon him. And he will help in the time of temptation Help in time of need. Remember this. Help in time of need. You know when you're in need, there's help in time of need. When you're facing temptation, and this is why Jesus becomes more relatable to, the, to you and more important to you in temptation than you might realize. When you're facing temptation, <laughs> wouldn't you go to one who has mastered it? Um, the, where's Brian? Is he here? There's a guy, Brian, in our church, and he is so good with engines. He, like, rebuilds, like, multiple a week. He's my um, sensei when it comes to rebuilding motors. And he's so knowledgeable. And every time I talk to him, I'm like, oh man, this is so complicated. I'm just not, but I'm, I'm just getting it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's great too. You go, I go, what are you doing? He's like, I just built, rebuilt like 10 this week. And I'm like, <laughs> you can do it by memory. He's a really smart guy. He's mastered it. Why would I ever go to someone like me who assembles it wrong, has a man cry, whimper, like, <laughs> why? Why did I do it right? And then has to redo it again and redo it again. I would go to someone who has mastered it. And so when we think about temptation, why would we go to someone who continually fails for the help? Why wouldn't you go to the one who has succeeded, the master of it? who has handled every aspect, every kind of temptation that we could face and beat it. That's who you want to go to. That's why you're invited to come talk to him. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I love, I love my kids as friends, but sometimes I've heard some of the advice their friends are giving them, and I'm just like... <laughs> and I want to be like, you, you know that's really dumb advice, right? That's the worst thing that they could say. Like, that's not going to be good for you. Do you know what I'm talking about? But your friends are so confident. They think that they're right, but they are the blind leading the blind. They should not be telling them what to do, but they freely do. And they're all like, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah. It's, you know what I'm talking about. This is what we're called to do, why we're called to go to Christ. 
To beat temptation at perfection, don't come to me. I have not, but Christ has. A lot of people can tell us what not to do. I can tell you what not to do. I've learned from failing in temptation. Or how to deal with your failure, how to process your failure, how to, how to, how to bring it to Christ after you fail. They can tell you how to do that. And they, they can actually help you see the fruit when you look at someone who's failed in their temptation. And you're like, oh my goodness, that's the fruit of that? You can look at their life and go, wow, I do not want that. They can help you with that. And they can bring you wisdom. But it's not mastery. It's not perfection. It's not in every scenario, in every situation at all times. This is why Jesus is the one to go to. They gave in, Jesus didn't, he mastered it. So when you're tempted, when you're struggling, like these people are, when, when the pressure is mounting, there is one who can sympathize with you because in every way they were tested. In every which way. Does that mean Jesus was tested with lust? Yes. Was he tempted with it? Yes. Did he give in to it? No. He was a human. Was Jesus tempted with fear? Yes. Did he give in to it? No. Think of every aspect of your life, and when the Bible says that he was tempted in all aspects, then he completely relates to you. Nothing you are tempted by is something he has not dealt with and put to rest. So that's why we come to Christ. That's why we invite him into our life. That's why we say, Jesus, what would you do right now? Help me. I need your strength. Um, you, you, you might not realize that there's a recorded in, in Luke a, an experience Jesus has with temptation real time. And, and if you look closely, you're going to see what he does when temptation arises. Okay? So let's read it. And I highlighted the things that he does. You'll see them in green. These are action points that are very relatable to us. Luke 22, 39, this is as he's about ready to enter into custody and they're in the garden and they're praying and they're getting away. The time is coming close. And he says, and he came out and went and as his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is how Jesus dealt with temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. When the temptation is there, pray, God, do, God, help me that I don't go into that direction. Help me that I don't give in. Help me. Pray. Be connected with God. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and prayed. Not only that, he became very isolated with him and God. No distractions, no nothing. He didn't need a disciple rapping in his ear telling him like, oh my gosh, I think they're coming. I, he, 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 Jesus, you shouldn't go. You can do this without dying, right? So he didn't need that. He needed to be just with God. He withdrew. Verse 42, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. There is the temptation. So you hear Jesus verbalize his temptation because he has an appointment. He has a task. And here he has a moment. And we are in these moments too. And here's what happened. He said, nevertheless, it doesn't matter. Not my will, 
And here's the action point, but your will. Not my will, but your will. I know this temptation. If I give into it, it's my will, but not my will, but your will. Let it be done. And then there appeared to him angels from heaven, strengthening him. And this is a good encouragement because when you battle temptation and beat it, you, you do, I think, I believe God does the same thing to us. You are encouraged by the Spirit. You are revived by the Spirit. You are recovering in the Spirit. Verse 44, and being in agony, agony, he prayed even more earnestly. So that didn't even do it. Didn't fully do it. He started to feel it more. And then he began to pray more earnestly. He began to double down more earnestly, so much so that his sweat became like droplets of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Look at the struggle he's in the middle of. And this is where you don't want to be, where the disciples are, where they're overwhelmed by it and they're sleeping. They're not awake. They're not fighting. They're just sitting. And they will be overcome by temptation because he's saying, you have to get up. You've got to pray. You've got to withdraw. You've got to face it. You've got to acknowledge the temptation. You've got to say, no, not that, but you, God. And then if it's continuing to go on, you've got to pray more earnestly to fight it. Jesus just gives us how he handled temptation. Get alone with God. You pray and you say, no, it's God's way. And if it doesn't work, <laughs> you're not comforted. You do not beat it. You pray harder. And you get more earnest about it. This is just one example of why Jesus is qualified to help you in the time of temptation. This is why we should have confidence when we're experiencing the struggle that you can go to him to beat temptation. I like this from a commentary I read, and in, in, um, I think it should be on the screen. It's not... By sinning that one is made sympathetic, but by being tested as we are tested. As the ancients, and this was a, a phrase that circulated, as the ancients expressed it, he was as we are, therefore he will help. He was not as we are, therefore he can help. A very good statement. Jesus did what you could not do so he could help, and he's capable of helping you in those times of need, and he will minister to you if you call upon him. The second point, and it's, it's fairly short, is confidence and mercy. This is the main thing we can walk away with. One, one is we have confidence in temptation. But when we fail, when you fall short, you have confidence in mercy. That God has made a way for you when you fall, when you fail. I've heard this, and tell me if you've heard this before, maybe you've even said these things. When you have fought temptation, you lost. And you feel like a failure. And you feel like, how could Jesus love me? I, 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 like, I'm too far gone. I've heard this. God, just give up on me. <laughs> In a prayer. <laughs> God, just give up on me. I'm done. I can't do it. I'm, I, 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 I don't know what I look like in your eyes. Or God must hate me. He must hate me. How could he love me? He must hate me. This is when the failure of sin has lost its confidence in who the Redeemer is. 
Or I'm ashamed to face God. And so we don't go to God. We go further from God. And we, we, we just accept the reality that we are succumbing to this sin, this problem. And so therefore we just don't go to God because he cannot look at us. He's not going to save me from this because I'm worthless and, and, and I cannot beat this. If you are there, you are wrong. And the writer is trying to tell them, you're wrong that, that Jesus is not just a high priest. He's faithful. He's merciful. He understands because he understands your life because he's been tempted in every way and can help you. But not only that, he can stand in your place because he was perfect to represent your sin through him and God. I, I had a guy one time who was trying to confess a sin to me. And um, <clears throat> I'm not a priest, but he was trying to treat me like a priest. Um, and I think he was trying to confess that he had murdered somebody. And so that's a tough spot to be in where I'm like, okay, all right. I, you're very coded right now. I'm assuming, I'm on assuming the best, but I think you're telling me something's bad's happened. But I can't just straight out blame you for this or accuse you of it. But he did, it was a very weird situation, which I'll never be in again. Um, he wanted to do his confession at his house. And so I was like, I'll do a house call. <laughs> I go to his house, and first thing I see is a handgun on his table. And I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I am in trouble. I texted everybody and said, listen, if you don't hear from me, this is where I'm at, okay? <laughs> Not a great situation to be in. The elders are like, Ryan, mm, no. And so, but I just wanted him to, he seemed like he was struggling and then as he's talking, and I could tell, like, there's a lot of confession. But he did make some statements, like, I've done things God can't forgive me for. And I kept thinking, like, so it's lost for me, he's saying that. There's nothing, like, God will not forgive me. And I kept thinking about the handgun <laughs> while he's talking. <laughs> and then his very coded admission to something very bad, which I couldn't understand. And then, and then I thought, okay. And then he's like, so... I guess that I, essentially I'm just lost. And that's never a great place to be with somebody who has a handgun. And so uh, I was there, and then he picked up his handgun, and I thought, this is it. <laughs> this is it. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's the first time I ever thought, today's the day I, I meet my maker. Um, and then it, it didn't end up turning out that way, thank goodness, although he did point it at me. But, you know, long story short, I'm here, and everything is good. Learned my lesson. But I just felt this from his conversation of like how life, and this is why I even went to maybe, the, if he's going to end his life, maybe he wants to end mine. And is because he was so lost of like he, God could not love who he is. How could a God love him? I don't know what he did, but I know that even what has happened in his, in his life and what he's done, Jesus is still able to stand in place of his sin if he were to come to him. Hebrews 5, 9. I'll re-quote it, and then I'll read this passage. He became the source of eternal life to tell all who obey him, right? To, to all who obey him. He became the source of eternal life. You could not have it without him being there in place of your sin. And so if you ever question whether God could love you, or, God, or you are able to ever stand before God righteously, and how could God love a person like you? Or why do I keep failing? I must not be good enough. Where are you, God? You've abandoned me. I'm just going to run from God. 
I'm going to give in to this. This is who I am. If you've ever thought those thoughts, please listen to this, that he's the source of your salvation because of what he did that you couldn't do. So find confidence in that. The more insecure you are about your sin, the more you will probably play into sin. And the more insecure you are about your confidence in Christ, the more you will give into it. So this is a dual issue that happens in people's lives. Let me read this and we'll close. 1 John 21, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's giving them instructions so they may not sin. And every time there's a, a but in the Bible, pay attention to the but. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You have an advocate. And we cannot lose sight of the fact that Christ is your advocate. Do not run. Do not think you're worthless. Do not think that you're unsavable or God can't help you. Run to him. He's your advocate. Find confidence in who he is and you will find mercy. Let's bow our heads. There's two uh, verses. I, wanted, I didn't want you to read it. I want you to hear it. And this is why I want you to hear it with your eyes closed. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul is saying. My grace is sufficient for you. It's capable. It's able. For my power is made perfect in weakness, meaning that even in your weakness, where you're at, as weak as you feel, Christ's power is made perfect in that. If you call on him. Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You know what that basically is? Is Paul is saying this very next verse in James 4, 6, even though he didn't write it. But he gives me more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When, when, when you humble yourself that you are not capable, that you need help, that you need an advocate and you need someone who can help you through the times of temptation. That is humility. The pride will keep you right in the cycle you are in. The pride might even just drive you away. But it's the humility to come to him in your weakness. So boast in the fact that you can't and he can. That's your confidence. And your confidence will bring freedom. And you will live and experience life differently the more confident you are in who Jesus is and how he is there for you and what he has done for you. And you are weak, and that's okay. But he is strong. So have confidence. God, we love you, and we thank you for this section of Hebrews, God. I thank you that the writer is... This, this section, God, I know has benefited many, many, many believers over millennium. And God, in this church then it was encouraging, in our church now it's encouraging. So God, let us walk out knowing you are with us. And let us walk out knowing that you are God of mercy and we can come to you any time we fail. But strength to, to, to prevent failure in the future is possible through you, Jesus. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this last time?